particular, what we see is the decline of the church. But not just the decline of the church, now we also have a pandemic that's wreaked havoc and split the church. And so we have all of these challenges that bring suffering for the body of Christ because some of our friends who used to be here sadly are no longer here. And I wish they were here. They should be here, but they're not. And so the same thing happens for us personally. We experience suffering and changes in our lives. And how do we face those sufferings? Terrible things had happened. And suffering occurred for these early Christians. So what is the foundation of life that has been shaken? Is it the foundation of the institution, the organization? A lot of people are worried about that. You know, what if the Lutheran church goes away? Some people are worried about other institutions. What if the police go away? the FBI go away? What if these organizations that, that we have placed a lot of trust in go away? Will we survive? Well, the shaking of the foundation reminds us that there is truly only one thing that we can cling to. And that one thing is Jesus Christ and his gospel, the good news. Now, Paul's perspective here is an interesting one in verse 12. Let me begin by just reading that verse. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here in prison, in chains, everything that has happened to him has helped to spread the good news, has helped to spread the gospel. Now, the first thing that I noticed in that verse, in that introduction of this particular section, is that Paul refers to his family. It's a spiritual family. He talks to them as brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. And, and so one of the things that I wanted to lift up is that that idea of a spiritual family originated with Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, who are your brothers? brothers and sisters, your mother, and he said, those who do the will of God, those are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. And so when we take a look at that concept of spiritual family, what Paul is helping us to understand here is that the brothers and sisters in Philippi truly are his family. And he is concerned about them just as you might be concerned about your own particular family, your nuclear family. Paul is as concerned, if not more concerned, about his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's sharing with them what they need. That is one of our values here at New Covenant. We just went through that revision of our values as a congregation. Last week, we looked at prayer as part of that theme from the first chapter. And today, the second 
one that we're looking at is family. Now, when we talk about family, we're not talking about just families. We're talking about individuals and families. And here's how the, the value gets described. Growing and interacting with families and individuals who value the family of God, who value that spiritual family. Now, there was a time up until the early 1960s or 1970s that a pastor didn't need a hotel. Did you know that? It was because there was this unwritten rule, expectation, community of pastors that if you were traveling, all you needed to do was call one of the pastors in the community that you were going to be staying at that night and ask them to put you up and and they did that. And, and so this was common across America, at least, up until the 1960s. And it is a vestige of an old concept that the family of God, the spiritual family, had an obligation for one another. I mean, we, we have really bought into our culture today, a culture of um, individualism. And buying into that culture kind of disrupts this concept of spiritual family. Because in this world that we live in today, what would look more different from a world of individualists than a community of faith, a spiritual family that loves one another, that cares for one another, that actually does more than just pray for one another? Not that prayer isn't important. But what if we took the extra step and shared our needs and the community stepped up and helped to deal with those needs? What would the church look like? That was the picture of the church for Paul. So Paul is in prison in Rome. Rome is about 800 miles from Philippi. It is a distance. And so when Paul's referring to the Christians in the vicinity, what he's talking about are Philippian Christians who have come to be near him in Rome. If you were in prison in the Roman Empire, um, like I said, it's not like our federal penitentiaries or or county jails. It was, uh, you didn't get your three meals a day. If you wanted to eat, somebody had to bring you food. If you wanted clothing, Somebody had to bring you clothes. If you wanted clean clothes, somebody had to go and wash your clothes. All those things that that we take for granted, even in prison, did not happen. And so for Paul, the, the community was a necessity. The spiritual family was how you how you survived. Think about if we began to look more like that, visiting our neighbor. Who went to the hospital taking food to someone who has experienced a hardship Timothy Silas Lydia Epaphroditus all of these and many more were part of Paul's spiritual family and they were all Philippians secondly the second thing we learn from verse 12 is that Paul believes that God is using his imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel. 
Paul is suffering in prison. Paul is experiencing extreme hardship. But he doesn't focus on the hardship. What he is focused on is that God is using this hardship, this imprisonment, this suffering, for the advancement of the gospel. And how the gospel is being advanced is really quite amazing. Paul's proclamation of the gospel was disruptive. You see, that's probably part of the reason he was in prison, was that he violated the social norms of the Roman Empire. One of those norms was to respect the paganism of the Roman Empire. As I mentioned last week, being a pagan wasn't being irreligious. It meant that you had multiple deities that you worshipped. You worship maybe the Greek gods or the Roman gods, in particular the Roman gods, but also the Roman deity, which would have been the imperial court, like Caesar Augustus or his wife, Livia. They were gods. And you didn't worship one, you worshiped a multiple number of them. So when Paul said that there's one God, one gospel, you can see how that began to rub people the wrong way. So for Paul... Being in chains is probably because he rejected paganism, the worship of Roman deities. There's actually a story in Acts 19 about this. Let me walk you through this a little bit. Acts 19, verses 23 to 41. I'm going to just begin the introduction here. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus, another city nearby, Concerning the way. Now the way is a reference to that early church, that Christian group, that Christian movement. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades. And he addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but as you have seen and heard this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. So Demetrius gets the crowds all worked up, and he starts a riot. And the group goes to the amphitheater, and um, they take two of Paul's colleagues Thankfully, Paul was not around when this all started, and um, although Paul wants to go there, his friends and cohorts who are with him prevent him from going. And so they are in the midst of the amphitheater, these two uh, disciples of, of Jesus from Paul, and as Demetrius works up the crowd, they're ready to do some serious damage to these two men. And finally, one of the uh, Roman leaders who is there goes and speaks to the crowd and tells them that they need to disperse. He said that they have a court of law, that if these men have done anything wrong, they can bring their evidence to the court of law and they will deal with it accordingly. And some of the crowd begins to disperse. And it's fun, funny because in the, in the story, it actually says that some of the people that were dispersing had no idea why they had got 
there in the first place. <laughs> so if you want to know how a riot starts, that's kind of probably how it starts. Um, so Demetrius is one of the more outspoken uh, Greeks, uh, Romans, excuse me, who uh, challenges Paul. And now you can see why Paul might be in prison because of the proclamation of the gospel being so clear and in a sense so pure um, that it's disrupting not only their social norms but their business life. Paul's imprisonment advances the gospel, however. The gospel that Jesus has come to bring new life, to restore life. And the Philippians continue where Paul had to stop. So the gospel's taking root. It is advancing. And it's taking root from those outside of the faith as well as those believers from within the faith. In our next verses, in uh, 13 and 14, we hear about this. Um, it says, For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak message, God's message without fear. So the gospel's taking root from those outside of the faith. So what we see here is that the whole palace guard, at least the guards that are around Paul, have come to faith. They have recognized that he is in prison because of his loyalty to God, the one who has come to restore creation. And so Paul is seeing the fruits of the gospel even in prison where his guards are beginning to understand who he is and why he's there and are open to hearing more about him. We also hear that brothers and sisters in the vicinity of Rome have increased, have gained increased confidence in proclaiming the gospel because of the chains that Paul is wearing. So it's kind of like because he is in prison, if the gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed, that means that the people that he has been ministering to, teaching, training, that they now have to step up and continue to proclaim the gospel. And so that's what we see happening here, is that Paul shares how, now again, this is 800 miles away to Philippi, so these are the, these are the Christians, at least in Rome, that have come to be around Paul, those Philippian Christians, they are speaking out, they are proclaiming the gospel, they are sharing the good news, they are ministering to people, they're doing these things. They hadn't been doing these things before Paul's imprisonment, but now they're doing them. And so we see the gospel advancing and growing. There's one Jesus follower from Philippi with Paul in Rome, and his name is Epaphroditus. We'll learn more about him later in Philippians. Um, I just love Epaphroditus because his name is so beautiful. That's literally what it means. Beautiful, charming, handsome. And I thought, you know, that's a beautiful description of me. And uh, so that's why I love that name so much. And uh, so if you just want to call me Epaphroditus, that I'll, I'll, I'll 
gladly accept that. So the gospel is taking root from these people, like Epaphroditus, like Silas, like Lydia, and others. But even though they are experiencing these advances, there is still more suffering to endure. Have you ever been in a position of suffering and you're just kind of waiting for it to end, like hoping to have a reprieve? And you get that reprieve and you can breathe a fresh uh, breath of fresh air, full. And then the suffering begins again. And does it stop? I think one of the challenges for us as Christians is that we think oftentimes that because we're Christian that we shouldn't have to suffer. I think Paul had almost the exact opposite perspective. I think Paul believed that we suffer because we're Christians. And we may not experience that suffering through persecution. We may actually take on suffering the suffering of others as Christians because of our compassion and our love. One of the basic descriptions of the way this early Christian movement was they were grounded in God's love. They loved. They didn't hate. They didn't get revenge. They loved. And so when we take a look at this, experience of suffering you know we learn a little more nuanced perspective about those preaching Christ in Rome in verses 15 to 18 it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry Paul says but others preach about Christ with pure motives They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my, not sincerely, with selfish ambition, not sincerity. Uh, um, What their intent is, is to make my chains more painful. But that doesn't matter. Because whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And I will continue, um, and I will continue to rejoice. So what we see here is that those preaching Christ out of goodwill are motivated by the love of God and by Paul's love for them. Now we know that Paul is in chains because of the gospel, so they are proclaiming the gospel on Paul's behalf. They are doing it because the gospel continually needs to be proclaimed. I remember when I was a youngster, I was probably sixth or seventh grade, my dad always had back problems. He played football in college. I think he injured his back when he played football. And then he was in a, a car accident, not a major one, but one and one that was jolting enough that it twisted his back. 
and he was in dire pain. And um, so he ended up going into a specialized hospital for surgery on his back. The surgery went okay, but it was a long recovery. He ended up with a lot of infection. And uh, so he was out of work for at least uh, six months to a year. It was, he'd go back for a little bit of time and then wasn't able to, to sit up. And um, so what I remember was that doctors from the community and the surrounding community, they set up a calendar and they came in and they took care of my dad's practice. So one day a week or once a day every two weeks, this doctor from Spencer would come and um, watch and, and take a look at the patients that my dad had. Um, every day there was another doctor that was filling in for my dad and they, they didn't ask for any pay. And it, it was kind of the culture of that, uh, it was an agricultural area in Northwest Iowa. I remember when farmers would get sick and perhaps it was time to harvest and so the other farmers would come out and run their combines and they'd do the harvest for the, the sick farmer. Or if it was planting time, they would, they would do the planting. And, and so there was this sense of community for one another. And that is what's happening with Paul. He is in prison, he can't preach other than the guards, the palace guard, who he's had some success with. Um, and so they, become the preachers. They begin to go out into the community to share the love of Christ and to, provoke, uh, to, to promote the gospel of, of Jesus. So the Philippians in Rome are working on Paul's behalf. In his upcoming trial, Paul believes will be a divine opportunity, a divine opportunity to defend the gospel and to advance it, to move it forward. So those are the people that are preaching Christ out of goodwill. What about those who are preaching Christ not out of goodwill? What about the ones who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition? Well, one theory is that these preachers saw Paul's imprisonment as a failure. Some scholars believe that this group of Christians believe that if you truly believed in Jesus, if you truly had faith, you would not suffer or experience any pain. Remember I told you that just a little bit ago, that's one of the challenges for us? That kind of Christianity creeps into our lives. It's called the theology of glory. You see, Paul was suffering in chains, and that was enough for them to say that he was a failure, that he didn't have enough faith, that if he had true faith, that he would not had become arrested, that, that he would be promoting the Romans, promoting the Christians, and doing everything to help everybody to get along. You might describe it today as the prosperity gospel, or this theology of glory. It's in, it's in direct opposition to what Paul preached, which we today would call the theology of the cross. You see, Jesus didn't become arrested, appear before Pilate in order for him to break out with his Superman cape and tell everybody that it's all over, it's fine, he's good. No, he went to the cross. He suffered and he died 
for your sins, for my sins, especially for my sins and for your sins. And what, what for? So that you could be restored to God. You see, when we talk about restoration, we're not talking about what you can do to help yourself. What we're talking about is what God has done to help you. So this theology of glory is that the more faith we have, the more blessing we will experience. We'll experience things like healing and wealth. You know, have enough faith and you can have power and protection and progress. This is ultimately, however, this theology of glory is ultimately about our glory. My glory. Your glory. But that's not what Jesus showed us. Jesus showed us how he went to the cross so that he could point us to God's glory. In the theology of the cross, we are called to die with Christ. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Faith is a gift from God, but so too is suffering. Because here, all glory is pointed to God in Jesus Christ. You can't be proud of suffering. <laughs> I don't think you can. I've never been proud of suffering. I've never looked forward to suffering. What suffering does is it reminds me that I am reliant upon the other. And the other is Jesus Christ. So those preaching against Paul, his chains, his suffering... Paul says that they're still Christians, but just with a different gospel. An important thing is that Paul doesn't silence them. In fact, this is what he says about them. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice. Paul has confidence in the Lord. And so he rejoices. Paul is confident that he will be delivered from his imprisonment. And the purpose for his confidence is Jesus. But also the Philippians, their prayers for Paul's release. And these prayers are prayed in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul writes a lot about the spirit of Christ. You know who else writes about the spirit of Christ? Is, is Luke. There's a beautiful reference here in, in um, Acts chapter 16. Let's see if I can find it here. I'm sorry, cha uh, Acts chapter 19. No, I'm, that was the earlier one. Acts 16, 6 through 10. This is the description of the Spirit of Christ. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Now let's jump ahead. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia once having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. 
It was through the Spirit of Christ, it is through the Spirit of Christ that that, that thing happened, that that experience happened, that, that a, a messenger of the Lord came to Paul in a vision that night and told him to go to Macedonia. And you know why that's important? Because guess where Philippi is? It's in Macedonia. And so Paul had had trouble in Asia trying to get the gospel proclaimed in that region. And it was through the Spirit of God that he was guided to a place called Philippi. But what if Paul is convicted and executed? What happens then? Will Paul depart and be with Christ? Will he remain in the body to advance the gospel? Paul confirms at the end of this section the necessity for him to remain with the Philippians. In in reality, his suffering will provide more opportunities to rejoice in the Lord. So I guess what I would glean from this today is that suffering is a part of the Christian life. But we don't relish in the suffering. We rejoice that God is being glorified because of the suffering. And so the point of suffering is not to suffer. The point of suffering is to look to Jesus and to know that that is where our hope is, that is where our promise is, that is where our faith resides. So rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. And so I think a perfect example would be if you went to Faith and Family Night because your baseball team lost, (laughs) but you still rejoiced, right? You still celebrated. You still gave thanks to God. And, you know, I wasn't there this night, uh, this, this year, but I've been there other years. And one of the aspects of those testimonies that I find so powerful is that the players are talking about their faith. And they're not talking about their faith in the context, oh, you know, because we're faithful, we're going to win. No, what they tell us is whether they win or whether they lose the game, their foundation is in Christ Jesus. Whether they make $50 million or $5 million, their faith is in Christ Jesus. You see, we are called not to look for suffering, but to experience it, to share it, and to use it to praise God. Because no matter what, God will be there. And God will provide No matter whether you're in prison or whether you're free, God will provide for you all that you need. So let's keep speaking and serving in the name of Jesus. Amen.